Okay, so you, you may not, or you may have read or watched the story of the Gruffalo. Uh, I've got young children. It's a weird one to start with, I know, but I've got young children, so I've got a bit of an excuse. And the Gruffalo is a story about a little brown mouse who's this tiny mouse living in a big bad wood. And every day he has to eat, so he has to brave this big bad wood and walk through it to get some food. And on his journey, everything that sees him thinks he looks tasty and wants to devour him. And his main enemies in the story that you watch are the snake and the fox and the owl. And there's not really very much that this little brown mouse can do. He's not very big. He hasn't got much strength to fight them off. And he definitely can't run away. But he's got no choice. He's got to go out. He's got to eat. But um, what he does have going with him is his brains. He's clever. And so as he walks through the wood on his hunt for, for food, he creates what he thinks is a fictional story about a beast called the Gruffalo. It's a sort of ugly, dribbling brown bear we should be able to see on the screen in a moment. Uh, not really, you can't really see it, but it's, there's a brown beast there somewhere. And he claims that this Gruffalo is actually terrified of him because he's a fearsome mouse. It's clearly a suspicious and far-fetched tale. But his enemies decide to, you know, we'll give him a, the benefit of a doubt, we'll give him a chance to, to prove it. But actually, as he walks through this wood, the Gruffalo is real. And he, he wants to eat the mouse too, surprise, surprise, when he bumps into him. So the mouse has to think quick again, and he, he, he gets the Gruffalo to follow him through, back through the woods. And actually, with such an intimidating figure walking behind this mouse, every time the, 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 he encounters the fox and the snake and the owl, they look at the mouse ready to eat him. And they look at the one who's with him, and they leg it. And actually, this effect is great because it, it fools the Gruffalo too. He sees what's happening, and he also legs it too. It's a great story. The mouse ends hev happily ever after in his search, looking for his search for food. It's an excellent story. But I want to spend some time talking to you about another excellent story, one that's from the Bible and one that actually happened. It's also about one like the little mouse who didn't have any strength of his own, and yet he faced huge enemies. It's the story of Gideon in the Old Testament, the Judges. And I, I feel particularly drawn to the story of Gideon because like him, I'm often afraid. And like him, I can often think I'm not strong enough. And like him, I can sometimes think it's just easier to get on with my life quietly, keep my head down. But the account of Gideon in the Old Testament is a bit of the Bible that I often, often read and uh, think about because it stirs and it encourages me. And I believe it will for us this morning. We're going to see that God plus nothing equals everything. Here in Gideon is a story that builds my faith, what he wants to come and do through us to reach the people around us with the gospel. Our family, our friends, our work colleagues, the community that we live in. So I want to give a bit of background to Gideon's story before I read some of it. The book of Judges, which is where it is, was a sad time in the Israelites' history. It was when a new generation had arisen that didn't know the Lord. Not just know intellectually, but actually turned away. They were the chosen people of God. They'd been led out of slavery by a God who performed many miracles. We heard that word from Hannah earlier about the parting of the Red Sea. That was one of them. And they'd had strong leaders like Moses and Joshua who had pointed them to God and they'd led well. But they had died. And quickly the Israelites had forgotten what the Lord had done for them. And uh, basically the history of who they were as a people. And because of that, they had actually ended up losing who they were themselves. And Judges ends with a sad line, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that sounds pretty familiar to me, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. They rejected God 
And the Bible is brutally honest about the mess that they got in. But here in this honesty, over and over again, we see the amazing grace of a mighty God who is in control. At this point in Judges 6, there's a people called the Midianites, and they're brutally oppressing these Israelites. And each time they're about to harvest their crops, this is the Israelites, these Midianites come down, attack them, and steal all their harvest. And we find the Israelites running scared. They're hiding in caves and dens. They're terrified and they're helpless. And in their distress, they cry out to the one greater than them, the Lord God. And in grace, God hears, God speaks, and God acts. And the account of Gideon is in uh, Judges 6 to 8, the chapter 6 to 8. I'm going to start in Judges 6, verses 11 to 16. I'm going to read a bit of it for us. It should also come out on the screen if you haven't got your Bibles. If you have, please turn to it. And this is the call of Gideon. So 6.11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. And a terebinth, by the way, is like an oak tree, somewhere to sit and uh, do to chat. Which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God hears. That's the first point I want to draw out, really, is that God hears. If we go back slightly to verses 7 to 8, we read that when the the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent. He hears. He's not sitting back unconcerned. He cares. The Bible doesn't show a distant maker just watching people mess it up, just looking at them saying, I told you so. Go on, you sort it out. No, he hears the cries of men and women and he feels compassion and in his great love he speaks and he acts. You see, firstly God initiates, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and Gideon is just a man getting on with it, doing the best that he can. He's trying to make some food that won't get nicked by these bully boys, the Midianites, and they're at their mercy and frankly mercy isn't something they're giving out. So he is doing it in secret. He's hiding because there's no one to stand up to these oppressors. He's being what I like to always say as the grey man, sort of unseen, getting on with your business. I don't know if anyone here has got a problem with net curtains in their household, a bit of a weird thing to admit, but in our household, the Siren household, there's a massive issue with net curtains. You see, I actually quite like being the grey man. I like being unnoticed, certainly in my own house, going about my business, not being seen. And uh, I grew up with net curtains. And when I married Hannah, I uh, just assumed that she too would prefer to be hidden from the world, all closed out. From all those prying eyes of those people that are so obviously so interested in me and my life that they would want to look into my window. But um, I insisted on net curtains as we got married. And it was to the horror of my wife. Because thankfully she's free of most of the hang-ups that I seem to have. 
uh, Hannah's got no problem with standing there being completely observed by anyone walking past. So I sometimes find they're just waving at various people walking past. I can't understand it. I'm completely opposite. And so in this, we've, um, we've kind of settled in this blind. It's a halfway house. We have this blind that's kind of a neck curtain. It kind of goes down and up. And if we're ever in the house together for the day, there's a battle of the blinds going up. So I'll find myself walking past. Good, get the blind down. No one can see me. Good. And as I walk back again, I found that Hannah has put it up and the window is exposed. This goldfish bowl of window. I know I'm weird, but what I'm trying to say in a strange way is that I get Gideon keeping his head down getting on with it and um, this, this odd odd this mess that the Israelites were in was down to their own decision to reject God they had rejected him they couldn't blame anyone else they were living with the consequences of this lifestyle and what was that consequence it was oppression and insecurity and crippling fear these were fearful days for the Israelites and every day we can turn on the news and we can see wars that rage. We can see tragedies happening closer to home, Manchester, London. Recently, we can experience in ourselves difficulties in finances and in health, in relationships and in jobs. And we too can feel overwhelmed and fearful and want to run or hide. Where are you, Lord, in this situation? Where are you? But he hears. And here in his story, he comes to Gideon right where he's at. And in grace, he comes to us right where we're at too. God speaks. The second thing I want to draw out is that God speaks. God calls Gideon out. In verse 12, we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. God meets Gideon where he is. He's hiding. This imperfect guy with all of his faults, this limited man who couldn't change his circumstances. So what's he doing He's doing the best that he can. He's working in secret. And yet God sees what those around Gideon don't see. In fact, God sees what Gideon himself doesn't see. Because Gideon here isn't the picture. He's hardly the picture of a great warrior leader boldly standing up to his oppressors. Now here is the picture of a man resigned to accept that this is just the way life is. Just trying to get on with it the best he can. Keeping his head down. And straight up, I can feel like that. I've, I've worked with uh, the same guys for a number of years. And when I first started, I mean, they know I'm a Christian. They know I love Jesus. I go to church. When I first started, I felt fired up in faith that there's going to be a kind of mini revival in the fire service, that people are going to come to Jesus just instantly. And yet, actually, I've seen little fruit. And uh, I feel challenged by this story, actually, this morning, that I've settled, maybe a bit like Gideon, into just accepting this. It seems impossible. How are you going to break in God? How are you going to change these lives? So I get on with my work. I do the best I can. I keep my head down. And yet these guys need to know Jesus. And I want faith to rise in me to believe that God will do this. How does God see this situation? Impossible. And I often picture this scene here of God calling Gideon out. And uh, he's in hiding. And yet God says those words, O mighty man of valor. You see, what must Gideon have thought? Let's not move over that. You see, sort of standing there going, what, sorry, him? Or, you know, him? Or anybody? Me? Mighty what now? God says two foundational things here. He says that God is with him. He's not walking alone. Almighty God, the miracle-working God, the one who placed the stars in the sky. Gideon is not alone. He has the Lord God with him, and he can, that means that he can do anything. It changes everything. God comes and shows his care 
He has a plan for Gideon that no longer includes him keeping his head down and hiding. No longer giving in to fear and accepting that life is just this way. Just seeing impossibilities. And people who know their God, who depend on him and him alone, see mighty things happen. Remember Moses we were talking about earlier and the things that miraculously happened to him in his life. He said to God, God, if you, if you don't go with me, it's not going to happen. And he believed God. And we can see through and through the Bible over and over again in church history that person after person that saw incredible things happen, breakthroughs and revivals. And we find it wasn't the person that's amazing. It was the extraordinary God who was with them. And these people believed and they depended on him. And so we need to remind ourselves of who he is, of his promises, read his word, immerse ourselves in it, simply believe it. Because this is the antidote to fear, to stop looking at ourselves, our lack of resources, our strength, and look at God who can and is able, the God of the impossible. The second thing that God says to Gideon is a statement that is completely different from the picture that we see of Gideon. See, God calls Gideon something that he wasn't. God says something about Gideon that Gideon himself wasn't believing. Gideon was listening to fear and circumstances and letting them dictate. He wasn't looking and listening to God. And in grace, God speaks and transforms Gideon into who God had made him to be. We need to listen to God. We can spend far too much time listening to ourselves, to fear, to circumstances, rather than listening to God. And we need to stop. Because God doesn't say the things that we might say over ourselves. Oh, I just, I'm just not good enough. I'm the least in my father's house. Or on the flip side of that, I'm, I'm so good. I'm proud. I'm, I'm, I'm able to do it. I don't need God. He doesn't say those things. God loves us and he's with us. And he has a great plan for our lives and for us as a church. That's each and every one of his precious, beloved children. Not just a few special times. It's for all of us, regardless of our age, our life stage, our situation, whether we're at work or at home, retired, the school gate. He's placed us where we are for a reason. And he calls us, as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, to the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. He's calling us in love to trust him and walk into the good things that he's prepared for us in simple faith in him and his power. There's a choice we need to make because it's it's risky. to, to There's a risk to God's call. It's not comfortable all the time. It's risky to believe God and walk with him. By the way, I just want to say that I don't actually um, believe that God miraculously changed Gideon's character, like in a moment. He didn't go from kind of an introverted guy hiding away to a no-fear Rambo type of leader. Over and over in the story, there's a reference. If you read Gideon, there's a reference to fear, and there's a reference particularly to Gideon's fear. And that's important to us because, actually, I think we can feel sometimes that when God comes and changes us dramatically... Then we're going to step out. Then we're going to be able to step out and pray for the sick. Then we're going to be able to share the gospel with our neighbours and our colleagues. Or we'll be able to give financially. But you see, I believe that uh, this story of Gideon is firstly about how great and able God is. And secondly, a gracious invitation to be used by him as a person that he's made us to be. You and I are uniquely made. We're placed uniquely by a loving God. We have unique gifts that only you can give. And we do this as a body together to show the light of Jesus, not one man shows. And so I think the important thing is to see what God does. He firstly reminds him that he's with him. And secondly, to listen to what he says about us and reject the lies. We need to walk with God through the fear. And then Gideon speaks. 
That's what we see in verses 13 and 15. It's that God is not looking for a do as I say and don't say anything back. He's after a genuine relationship. After God speaks in verse 12, we don't see Gideon just sitting around nodding his head blindly. Yes. We don't see him passive sitting there doing nothing. We see an active man talking back to God, speaking out his true thoughts and feelings in reaction to what God says. In verses 13 and 15, Gideon is wrestling with God. And he says, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonderful deeds? And Lord, how can I save Israel? I'm the least in my father's house. And two things on this. Firstly, I think this is a clue as to who Gideon was. Yeah, we've already been seen, we've already told, been told that in Judges 2.10 that this was a generation who didn't know the Lord. And uh, knowing the Bible means a lot more than just intellectually, like a head knowledge. It means a joining with, an, in, an intimacy. They didn't walk with God, but here is a man who seems to remember some of the history. And I think a man who shows the small sparks of faith, tiny sparks that God is about to fan into huge flames. We may have tiny sparks of faith in us. We may struggle to believe that God can save, he can heal, but that little spark is all he needs. Don't write it off. It's precious. In Luke 17, 6, all the disciples are, are saying to Jesus, increase our faith, come on. They're thinking that their own effort could uh, get them somewhere. They think if maybe we say it louder, we work it up in some way, then something will happen. But Jesus says to them gently, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And a mustard seed is tiny. Apparently it's a millimetre across. And yet someone wrote that when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it. So the point is our small faith is all we need to start. It's about what God wants to come and do, and it's about who our faith is in. We don't need to shy away and wait for someone with greater faith to come and do these things. We turn over the tiny sparks that we have. That will do. Secondly, God seems to love this kind of conversation, people coming back to him, saying, well, you said this, so why? He longs for a relationship and not robots. He loves it when his people are real with him. Just read the Psalms, we can see that. He already knows our thoughts, right? So why do we pretend in prayer so often? The sort of prayers that don't actually include the things that we're truly living with, no matter how ugly they may be. When I'm cross, my life isn't going to go in the way it, it, it plan, I planned it to, so I, or I stepped out of faith and nothing happened. And I felt that not that long ago, actually. Someone that we, uh, we know close to our family, there's something bad had happened, and this person and their family don't know Jesus, and any attempts of ours to speak about him get shut down completely. And uh, there's something bad had happened. And I, as I prayed I felt about the situation, I felt really stirred that if I laid hands, if I offered to lay hands on this person, that they were going to get healed and that the whole, this was going to be a, whole si a sign for the whole family. The whole family were going to turn to Jesus. I was like, come on, Lord. But I prayed and it didn't happen. It completely fell flat. I wasn't even allowed to admit that I was praying about this person. It was shut down. And I felt, actually, that this was an opportunity for God to show who he was. And it was gone. And I was, honestly, I felt cross. And that feeling can fester and it can turn into cynicism. So, like, head down. So, just take it to God. We often pretend with one another. We often wear many different masks and say things like, yeah, I'm fine, when we're not. God doesn't want our pretense. He wants relationship. Real, what's and all relationship. When you feel down and you feel angry, 
take it to him in prayer. And when we're facing problems in life, problems we, we all face or we will at some stage, take them to him and ask him to come and do what he says he'll do. Why, Why is this happening to me, Lord, when you say that you're with me? Uh, you, you say rejoice always, but I can't right now. Take it to him. That's relationship. And God loves it when we take up his promises in his, in his word, like Gideon does here, and we say, come on, Lord, you said this, so come and do it. God acts. That's the third thing I want to draw out from this. In verses 14 and 16, God tells Gideon to go. Go, he says, in this strength of yours. And what is that strength? It's simply this. Who is it that sends him and is with him? That's his strength. Do not I send you, says the Lord, but I am with you. Don't say that you can't. You don't have the strength. You're just the least in your father's house. God doesn't speak that over Gideon, and he doesn't speak it over us. It's true. Gideon can't do it alone, but he's not alone. God can, and he's with Gideon. Look at verse 16. But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I love that verse. Talk about stirring faith. And if we know Jesus, and we're part of his family, then God is with us, and he has stuff for us to do. And Gideon is filled with fresh faith. And maybe today we need fresh faith. Fresh faith to believe that God is who he says he is, which might mean taking the first steps of faith this morning, coming and meeting him. It might be fresh faith today to believe that God is with us as we go to whatever we're facing tomorrow, whatever we're doing. Fresh faith. Fresh faith to believe that God's going to come and heal that sick friend. Fresh faith to believe that as a church, we're going to grow as we plant more sites to reach more people with the gospel. And faith to believe, actually, in all of this, he could use us. These are our battlegrounds. The Apostle Peter tells us that our faith is more valuable than gold. God loves faith, especially those small sparks that we talked about, and he plans to grow us strong in it. Faith is simply believing God. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith. Yes, God does enable us to have faith in the first place, but faith is active. It's something that we do. And it's precious to God. In Romans 4, we read about Abraham growing strong in his faith. Abraham simply believed God in the situation that he was in, that he could raise the dead to life. And he didn't know how. He didn't have all the answers like us. He placed a simple trust in the one who is able. And that's reassuring to me. Because God says, with your limited knowledge, with all your flaws, step out. Go. Because I'm with you. And there's still small steps to take. If we look at Gideon as we continue on, Gideon doesn't go from this encounter, this calling, straight into this battle of his life. He makes mistakes. He tests God. That's recorded, the fleece. It's recorded not to say this is the good way of doing it. He's recorded because it's showing that he's human. He's still not quite sure. And in this, he starts small. That's Gideon. Verses 25 to 27 show that God asking Gideon to destroy an idol in his own town, this, this, this idol of a false god that's there. That's God giving Gideon a chance to grow. And Gideon attacks it at night. He's not alone. He rounds up some of his family servants who basically don't have a choice because that's what they are. They're servants. They have to go. And in verse 27 it says, but because he was too afraid of his family, he did it by night. You see, small steps, still afraid, small sparks of faith, ordinary guy extraordinary God and how helpful is this for us there's a growing in faith and it mostly starts small small prayers for people that we live and we work with God give me an opportunity to share my story today simply yeah, Lord help me use me in the everyday places of my life 
We're not alone and we don't have to be. In verse 34, and this is a massive key, Gideon is clothed with the Spirit. You see, we're not to rely on our own strength or our own rational thinking. We need God. And he, Jesus promised his followers the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to live for him, for Jesus, each day. Once Gideon is clothed in the Spirit, God takes him on to a bigger battle. In Judges 7, Gideon faces the massive job of leading the Israelites against these Midianites. And he looks at this vast army before him and the many thousands of armed to the teeth fighters and the scale, of, the scale of this battle is terrifying to Gideon. And he does what any one of us would. He gathers as many people for the fight as he can. He wants to make himself seem bigger. And we can do that too. We can look with human eyes. But God says, no, no, it's my battle. So in chapter 7, verse 2, God speaks to Gideon and he tells him to reduce his army. There's just too many of them. You can imagine Gideon saying, what? Look at that lot. Too many? Look at, look at ours. But um, Gideon doesn't miss here. God reduces Gideon's army, firstly from 22,000 to 10,000, which is probably making it much harder, but still not impossible. But then God reduces it further to 300, just 300 men, which meant that Gideon's fighting force was outnumbered 450 to 1. What do you think of those odds? Poor? Impossible? Frankly, they're ridiculous. But God says in verse 2 that the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Because God will not give his glory to another. He alone is able to save. He won't let us boast in ourselves. And he isn't giving Gideon that option. And so with ridiculous odds, this little group of uh, men go up to fight the hordes of Midian. And in Judge, Judges 7, 19 to 25, it records an incredible battle that is fought by a few against the many, little against large. A battle that should have been laughable, it should have been over before it even started, and yet God does as he promises, and he fights for Gideon, and he fights for us. The Israelites, all 300 of them, line up on the edge of the camp at night with trumpets and jars concealing flames, and they blast the trumpets, and they shout, and they break the jars, exposing the flames. And in the confusion of the middle of the night, the Midianites get up all over the place, and they end up taking the sword to one another, killing each other. And Gideon and his tiny, tiny army finish off the dwindling numbers. And there is great victory for God, a great victory. And God shows just how extraordinary he is. And if we put our faith in God, then look at the victory that he can make happen, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. But his story about Gideon isn't just about an Old Testament hero, because there aren't any Old Testament heroes. They're just ordinary men and women. Abraham, who we talked about, Moses, Gideon, they all fall short of the glory of God. They all mess up. They're all full of limitations and failings and weaknesses, just like me and just like us. The story of Gideon points to the one who was to come, the true hero. The one who he initiated and came. The one who fought and beat an oppressor far worse than the Midianites. Who faced the enemy against insurmountable odds. This world is blinded by sin. It's oppressed by it. And yet this one walked with no sin. He was punished, forsaken and killed for our sin, for my sin. This one rose again victorious, having beaten the enemy. Jesus Christ. This is the hero it's all about. He's done it all. He's made a way where there was no way. And we get to open up empty hands of faith. And he graciously, lovingly fills them. 
He invites those who don't know him to come and believe that he is who he says he is. Are you listening to him today? Let's not boast in our own hand or our own works, but boast in the finished work of Jesus. In him, we are called righteous and pure and spotless. And in him, we're beloved children of God. We don't deserve it. We don't, can't earn it. We all turned away. We've all done what is right in our own eyes. And yet Jesus offers free, wonderful grace. Free, but totally costly to him. And, the more, and more than this, Jesus commissions us today. He gives us his Holy Spirit to depend on. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go in this strength of mine, because I have works prepared for you to do. Jesus is calling us. We can't write ourselves off because we don't think we're good enough. God is, and that's enough. Paul again writes in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so, that it, that as, so as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the law. We may walk through the bad, dangerous woods like that little brown mouse at the start, with all the sorts of problems looking to devour us. But with us and in us is the hero who made a way where there was no way. He goes before us and he goes with us. And we get to partner with him in this. We have to keep our heads up, not down. Not write ourselves off. And place our small sparks of faith in the greater faith of Jesus Christ, the victorious King of Kings. The righteous, it says in Romans, shall live by his faith. Weak people, mighty God.